there are um, some churches of Appalachia, uh, mostly north of us in Kentucky and West Virginia, that are so-called snake-handling churches, primarily of the Pentecostal persuasion. The pastor and actually others in the congregation handle venomous snakes, as I understand it, typically uh, timber rattlesnakes as a form of worship and faith during their services. Here are a couple of pictures, some of many that I could show you, which depict the practice. In fact, three years ago, ABC News produced a headline story when a famous snake-handling pastor, I wonder what makes a famous snake-handling pastor, died of a rattlesnake bite. In fact, uh, there have been many such deaths. That's usually where it ends up. Well, I have a confession to make. A year and a half ago, I was with Operation Christmas Child in Guyana with Randy Riddle um, and uh, Kerry Gregory. Uh, Riley was there, I think, and uh, Hannah Bolvey and others. Shortly after a distribution at an elementary school, we were on a bus on the way back to the hotel. There, on the side of the road, in front of another elementary school, was gathered a large crowd. We saw two men holding a 14-foot anaconda between them, which they had caught directly across the street in a water culvert. Not wanting to miss an evangelistic opportunity, <laughs> we stopped the bus, and yours truly handled the aforementioned anaconda. That's right, this is not photoshopped. I'm not sure that you can see the demonic nature of the snake, so let me enlarge that for you. I know that you are impressed, and well, you should be. While not venomous, anacondas are the world's largest snakes, squeezing the life from their prey and swallowing them whole. My life was in grave, eminent danger. It was an act of testosterone-filled, masculine faith and leadership. <laughs> Whatever, Hannah. I have waited for a year and a half to show you those pictures. But where do those who participate in snake handling biblically get the practice? I suppose you could go to Acts 28. There, Paul was on his way under arrest to Rome to give a defense of his faith, having appealed to Caesar. After a shipwreck, he and all those on board made it safely to the island of Malta. There, because of the rain and the cold, they decided to build a fire. And we read these words in verses 3 to 5 of Acts 28. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper, you should say it that way, a viper, Came out from, it came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he, that is Paul, shook the creature off in the fire and suffered no harm. So I suppose the practice could come from that particular text. However, please notice this was not an intentional snake-handling event. Further, Paul was bitten 
and the snake died at the end of the story. Quite different from what we see in those snake-handling churches. The handlers are typically the ones dying. Perhaps it comes from Mark 16, verses 17 and 18, which read, and this is Jesus speaking, these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Wow, you didn't even know that was in the Bible. So under every chair this morning is either a rattlesnake or a bottle of deadly poison. Just kidding, that's a little creepy. (laughs) We have a significant challenge before us today. We arrive at the last sermon in the Gospel of Mark. Well, actually, that was last Sunday. And you say, whatever do you mean? I have several verses left in my Bible in Mark 16. That's what I want to talk to you about briefly today, and I do mean briefly, Merry Christmas. If you have been at Alliance Bible Fellowship long, you know that we focus on the Bible. You heard me perhaps say it this way, my great passion for us as a church is to be Christ-exalting, gospel-centered, and word-saturated. So, if you are looking for a church with some gimmick to produce church growth so that we can be a big church right here in Boone, this is not the place for you. I don't have gimmicks. We simply have our great Christ, His great gospel, His great word, which communicates His great plan of humanity, salvation for our great joy and His great glory. And those are not just Christian words to us. This is who we are. So, we study books of the Bible here. That is not to say there is anything wrong with studying topics which are biblically based. We do that in lots of other venues like connection groups and life groups, uh, other studies. That's great. But, but, But on Sunday mornings, we choose to study through books of God's eternal Word. And, and, and we don't skip anything. The difficult passages, the familiar passages, the easy passages, the confusing passages, we just take them as they come. And yes, I understand it takes us a while. In fact, recently we had a couple who, who had been here for some time and been actually involved. They left the church and cited as their reason they didn't like being in Mark for over a year. I didn't have the guts to tell them that, well, it, it's actually two years. <laughs> but leave they did. You see, when I talk about the importance of the Bible, there are two doctrines I want you to remember. One is called inspiration. We get it from 2 Timothy chapter 3, among other places, which says all of God's Word, every word is inspired or breathed out by God. That means without without eliminating the personalities of the authors or culture or history or grammar. Every word is exactly what God wants it to be, which means the Bible is fully trustworthy. It is all God's Word. Remember, we we said a couple of months ago, it doesn't just contain God's words, uh, God's Word as if some of it is from God and, and some of it is from man. It is all God's Word. Now, the second 
doctrine is called preservation. Simply said, preservation means if God was going to go to the trouble of inspiring His Word, He would also preserve it such that what we have in our Bibles is God's trustworthy, faithful Word. Even even 2,000 years after the last book was written, the book of Revelation, faithful. And from that, if you don't hear anything else today, from that you can have full confidence that your Bible is God's Word. I believe that, and I do not want to do anything to destroy your, your, your complete, rightfully placed confidence in the Bible. But you do understand two other facts about the Bible that has to do with what we call transmission. That's another word. That is passing the Bible on to succeeding generations. First, you should know that we do not have the so-called autographa, that is, uh, we do not have the original autographs, like the, like the original manuscript that Mark wrote or the original letters that, that Paul wrote, gets to the end, says, sincerely yours. R- rather, we have copies of copies of copies. So, for example, every once in a while, you'll hear a doctrinal statement, read a doctrinal statement that says something that, like, we b- believe the Bible as originally written is inspired and inerrant. Now, under the, uh, uh, the doctrine of preservation, what we have has been supernaturally, and I use that word intentionally, supernaturally preserved. So that, for example, there is amazing agreement among the 5,000 Greek manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. Whether those manuscripts are small fragments, some no larger than the postage stamp, or, or entire books. This massive agreement, again, supernat- is supernatural such that there is over 99% agreement. That is amazing, unheard of. And, and there are no major doctrines affected in an in that less than 1% textual difference. Which leads to the second fact to know about this transmission. Careful copies were made through the centuries by scribes or monks, whatever. But minor copious mistakes were made, which account for that less than 1% challenge of textual difference. But sometimes... Those mistakes were intentional. What do I mean? Sometimes those guys who were copying thought something might be better written so they would change a word or two or sometimes an entire story or or verse they would add by way of explanation. They think a story should be here and they would insert it. All of that brings us to the 16th chapter of the book of Mark. One author addressing this issue writes, in general, these copies show remarkable, I use the word supernatural, agreement among themselves. The most notorious exception to this otherwise happy rule, however, is the ending of Mark, which presents the gravest textual problem in the New Testament. This is serious. 
Last week, we studied the resurrection in verses 1 to 8, and I suggested that was actually the end of Mark. But perhaps you quickly and rightly observed, what, th- th- there are lots of verses after Mark 16, 8, namely verses 9 to 20. W- what about them? Great question. You should know the following. First, the earliest and most reliable Greek manuscripts of Mark 16 do not have verses 9 to 20. It ends decisively at verse 8. Second, the earliest church fathers, those are those guys who were leaders and who who wrote commentaries on the New Testament, do not comment on verses 9 to 20 simply because they were not there. Third, I want to say this gently, verses 9 to 20 frankly do not fit. For example, the transition from verse 8 to 9 is both thematically and grammatically awkward. The the subject in verse 8 is the women, and then we get to verse 9, and it it switches with the pronoun, which the pronoun should have an antecedent referring to the women, but it's a masculine pronoun, obviously referring to Jesus. It's awkward. Further, Mary Magdalene is introduced as if she's a new character in the story, and yet she's already been mentioned in the previous three stories. Further, this is important. The writing does not sound like Mark at all. There are 18 words in these few verses that do not appear in the rest of Mark. You say, is that significant? That is significant. We would expect two, three, maybe four, not 18. Given the evidence, both external and internal, almost every evangelical scholar, in fact, I didn't find a single one that doesn't, every evangelical scholar today agrees that Mark 16, 9 to 20 is not original, which which begs some other questions. First, I mean, well, who added it? (laughs) We don't know. It, It appears in second century manuscripts, which means it came on very early. But it wasn't original. Well, well, why was it added? Well, we can only guess. But, but many suggest it was added because the book ends rather abruptly with the women in fear and, incredibly, no resurrection appearances of Jesus. So, they say, someone thought it would be good to add an, an ending to bring the story to a better close like the other three Gospels. Perhaps we'll come back to that. Next question or perhaps statement, you should know that there were actually two endings added after verse 8 in Mark's gospel. The the so-called shorter ending and, and the longer ending, which is likely in your Bible. The shorter ending reads, and they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions, and after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Listen, no one accepts that as the ending of Mark's gospel. It frankly um, has some weird words, and it, it doesn't sound like Mark at, at all, and it doesn't appear until centuries later in very few manuscripts, so someone obviously added it, And it got copied a very few times. And so it's easy to dismiss that one. But what about the other one? There is also this longer ending, which again is likely in the Bible sitting in your lap, verses 9 to 20. What do we do with that? Well, 
We've been talking about it. Why don't we read it? Mark 16, 9 to 20, say this. Now, and, and there might be in your Bible a, a notation that indicates in, in, in the reference notes that this doesn't belong, or it may be bracketed, which indicates that it doesn't belong. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he, that is Jesus, appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. And after that, he appeared to, in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. So afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him and after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has, and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In, in my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus, stop right there, because I don't have this in my notes. I'm just going to comment on this. Lord Jesus, this is the only place that that title appears in any of the Gospels. This was a later understanding, a later title, rightly applied to Jesus in, in in the later epistles, but it's nowhere in Mark or any of the other Gospels. This was a later understanding added by this author. So when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that follow. Again, for the reasons that I gave earlier, most agree that this was not part of Mark's gospel. He did not write these words. We're going to come back to the longer ending in a moment, but this begs another very important, hotly debated question. And when I say hotly, I mean hotly debated. They go about, they argue it for pages in my, come borrow my commentaries, you can be thrilled as was I. Did Mark, here's the question, did Mark end his gospel at verse 8 so abruptly with, again, no resurrection appearances of Jesus, with the women trembling in fear, or was the original ending lost? Now listen, there are godly conservative evangelical scholars on both sides of this particular debate. The commentaries in my office do not agree. Some strongly suggest, nope, Mark ends at verse 8, and they give all of the reasons why. Others say, nope, it does not end at verse 8, either uh, Mark... Um, wrote more that we lost, or he intended to write more, but he didn't. He either died, got sick, martyred, whatever. They give all the reasons why there had to be more. I have an opinion. I know that shocks you. But given the doctrine of preservation, it gives me no small amount of heartburn to think that we have lost some of God's Word. I don't believe that happened. I personally think that Mark ends it at verse 8. But if you believe differently, and I know we have some well-studied, really smart people in this room, if you think that the verses 9 to 20 belong here, listen, that is fine. But with all that said, 
What do we do this morning with Mark 16, 9 to 20? Let me offer some further thoughts. First, we at the very least have an early Christian writing commentary, if you will, on the, on the gospel. But by the time these verses were added, again, second century, these stories were widely circulated and accepted. In other words, there was a resurrection. There were lots of appearances. There was lots of proof, widely held, widely understood. That's cool. But second, we can use these verses in our discussions, but we must know they are without inspired biblical authority. That is significant. Uh, For example, I know of a band introduced to me recently that has as their tag verse, you know, that is associated with their band, Mark 16, 15. I wouldn't do that. I've seen videos, Christian ministries using uh, Mark 16, 15 as their tag. I would not do that. No biblical authority. Which leads to the third very difficult thought, since it is not inspired, it is also not necessarily without error. You do understand that commentaries written about the Bible are not inerrant. <laughs> I've got several I can show you. They, 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 they have problems in them. Enter snake handling and poison drinking. We're going to go through this text briefly to to see where these stories that we just read are found in the other Gospels, or actually Acts, but snake handling and poison drinking are not there. All this brings us to the text. Look at it briefly with me. I'll even outline it for you. The appearance to Mary Magdalene, the two on the road to Emmaus, the appearance to the eleven, the Great Commission, the accompanying signs, the ascension of Jesus, the preaching of the gospel. Seven points would be most incredible and exciting if I were going to preach the text. Calm down, I am not. Beginning with the appearance to Mary Magdalene, the other three, three gospels mention this. Luke 8 indeed tells us that she is the one whom, from whom Jesus drove seven demons. She followed him faithfully. I've made a big deal about that. She was present at the death, burial, and resurrection. She saw him first, and she did go tell the disciples. Second, the appearance to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is found in Luke chapter 24. Very interesting. This particular author, when he records it, reminds us that Jesus appeared in a different form, because when Luke records the story, these Two, did not recognize Jesus, not until later at a meal when he broke bread with them. Remember that? By the way, notice both Mary and these two women reported to the eleven who did not believe them, so Jesus appears next to the eleven. We we see this in the other Gospels and in the book of Acts. He actually appeared to them right there in Jerusalem in the upper room, then later in Galilee as Mark mentions back up in verse 7. He reproaches them for their unbelief and the hardness of their hearts in that unbelief. Again, found in Luke's gospel. After all, he had told them three times, remember Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, that he would be killed, but he would be raised from the dead. Why don't you believe it? I told you that was going to happen. That's the idea. Then he gives the great commission in verses 15 to 16. See, we are already at point four. Come on. You should be impressed. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. It is a great summation of Matthew 28, but also has some thoughts added from John and Acts. 
go preach the gospel to all creation. In Matthew, he said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Stop right there. Here, this author says the one who the ones who believe and are baptized will be saved. That's a bit confusing and makes it sound like baptism is necessary for salvation, which actually does kind of come from Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. When, when he had preached the gospel, they asked him, what must we do? Peter responded, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. So is baptism necessary for salvation? I want to say no. B- but... It is the capstone of the salvation experience, if you will. It is an outward expression of the inward reality of saving faith. And so baptism may not be necessary for salvation, but it is an act of obedience as a follower of Christ. And so if I were preaching this text, I would take the opportunity right now to say to you, if you are a follower of Jesus and you have not been baptized, you need to be uh, January 10th but, or, or 14th. But since I'm not preaching it, I, I won't say that. Okay. By the way, notice the end of verse 16, the ones who disbelieve will be condemned. That is not in Matthew's account of the Great Commission, but it is found in John's gospel, but not after the resurrection. It's considerably early in, earlier in John chapter 3. Fr- from there, John gives the accompanying signs of those who preach the gospel. This is quite unique to Mark, diff- completely different from the other gospels, but, but the truths are largely found largely in the book of Acts. For example, Jesus says they will cast out demons. The disciples did that in in Acts. They will speak with new tongues. They did that throughout Acts. And and Paul will even talk about it in his first letter to the Corinthians. They they, they will lay hands on people and heal them. Again, we see that throughout the book of Acts. But, but, But then comes those two rather spurious references to snake handling and poison drinking. The only snake story is found in Acts chapter 28 that we looked at uh, a few minutes ago. Well, well th- there is another r- slight reference. Th- th- in the return of the 70, after Jesus had sent them out to proclaim the gospel, s- sent them out in Luke chapter 10. When they returned, they were excited that even the demons were subject to them. But Jesus says, sorry, I don't have this on the screen for you. You just have to listen. Jesus says, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. And over all power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nothing. I suppose that could refer to poison. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits, he returns to the main topic, the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Again, trampling on snakes and scorpions is simply illustrative of Christ's presence and protection and power. But he is not initiating the practice of snake handling. And there is no reference, not one, of drinking deadly poison in the rest of the New Testament. If you want to try that, have at it. I would not, however, put God to the test. We do remember from Matthew 28 that Jesus said that he would be with us to the end of the age, and perhaps these examples uh, were the author's idea of Christ's presence and protection could be. Verse 19 references Jesus' ascension. Matthew and John do not record the ascension. Luke and Acts, both, by the way, written by Luke, do so in Luke 24 and Acts 1. (coughs) Of course, Paul references Jesus' ascension to sit at the Father's right hand in many places that this author obviously knew about and, and used. 
Finally, verse 20 speaks of the obedience of the early disciples to preach the gospel everywhere, accompanied by the presence of Christ and confirming signs. And again, we see this happening throughout the book of Acts. So there you have it. <laughs> so, so what in the world are you supposed to do with that? And you're thinking, we could have taken the day off. That's all, that's all you got? Yes. I was very intentional about not saying to you, Luke, I mean, uh, Mark 16, 16, 9 to 20 aren't in the Bible, so let's just move on. Because I did not want to destroy your confidence in the Word of God. And I wanted to tell you why. So, so, so the following three thoughts. First, if I am right, and I think I am, I want you to understand that I have just preached an entire sermon without a text. Come on, that's funny. <laughs> Second, we can be encouraged that early on there was an understanding in the early church that the resurrection of Jesus and the spread of the gospel were facts. They were true. God was doing what he said he would do. And again, third, we can have complete confidence in the faithful, inspired, preserved Word of God. There may be, it would be ignorant for me to stand up here and, and, and tell you that there are not textual challenges. There are. But no doctrine is affected. God not only inspired His Word, He preserved it. That's why we study it. So, now we're done with Mark. A week from today... Be Christmas Eve, and I, I know that some of you are irritable by now, and so I'm going to preach a Christmas message. Uh, two weeks from today, New Year's Eve, Michael is going to take us to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and he's going to give us some New Year's thoughts. It's going to be fantastic. And then, Lord willing, three weeks from today, we will begin our next book. That's all I know how to do. And we will begin the book of Hebrews. I'm, I know, I'm excited too. <laughs> Uh, everybody's asking, I don't know, one, two years, I don't know. But it's going to be really, really, really good and exciting. I've never taught that book um, before. Why don't you stand with me and we'll pray. So, Father, we, um, um, we thank you for the veracity, the faithfulness, the truthfulness, the clarity the sufficiency of your word. And we, and we understand that you not only inspired it, you preserved it, such that what we have in our laps and what we read in the mornings, what we study together as a church and various venues, we can trust it. It's faithful. It's good. It's right. It's your revelation to us. And so my desire to, today has not been to cast dispersion quite the opposite, to encourage your people with the faith and trust we can have in your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.